Well, good morning. We're uh, continuing in our series in 1 Samuel. If you have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Samuel 22. If you don't, the scripture is printed in the bulletin, also with a place to take notes. On pages uh, 6 and 7. So we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6, reading through chapter 23, verse 13. Give ear now. This is God's word. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of, you have con- uh, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses it to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death 
of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David and to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy this city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. This is God's word. As we look at this passage today, I've got to tell you that one of my favorite I guess kids' stories, but it's more meaningful to me now than it was when I was a kid, uh, is the emperor's new clothes. Right? You know that story? Um, and I say it's my favorite, really, because it haunts me. And so it's with me more often than any other story, I think. Um, it haunts me because I, I, I have the fear of, of being the emperor in so many different ways. But you have this emperor in a town that are so desperate for their reputation Right? They're so desperate that other people think rightly of them. They're so desperate to not be seen as less than worthy of the jobs that they have that they pretend to see clothes that aren't there. Right? They lie. This entire village, town, whatever, emperor, I guess this entire empire, um, it, you know, lies to the point that the emperor himself puts on this non-existent clothing and prances around the city naked right? Because he's wearing this clothing that nobody can see, but everybody pretends they can see it. Um, and the people, right? It's not just the, the emperor who's a fool, but the people are sitting there going, ooh, ah, do you see that? I mean, the whole, the whole empire is, is, is foolish. And, uh, and I think, like, for me, the reason that's so powerful is because I think, I think that the most dangerous thing that anyone can be guilty of, okay, so I'm about to say something important. The most dangerous thing I think that anyone can be guilty of is to be unwilling to accept and own the truth. 
okay, to be the emperor or to be one of the people in the empire is one of the most dangerous things that anybody can be guilty of. Okay, because with every kind of sin or weakness, with any kind of problem that you have, thing that needs to get worked out, if we're willing to let other people approach us, right, if we're willing to receive the truth that we have a problem, then there's hope, right? There's hope for change. But when we cut ourselves off, when we build walls between us and the truth, when we hear the truth and refuse to accept it, there is no hope, right? What do you do then? I mean, really, the way that people deal with, you know, people that have problems is that they just try to become, they they try to create more and more intense confrontations of the truth, right? Interventions are the end road of a long list of things that are done when people are unwilling to accept the truth. And when we're unwilling to do that, there really is no hope, right? There is no hope. We are that emperor. And unless, you know, the, the story ends with a little girl who's in the empire who says, you know, not knowing any better, but the emperor's not wearing any clothes. You know, and at first the, 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 the adults around are going, ah, ha, 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 stupid child, you know. And then there's enough there that have a sense of, I think we've all been squashed. You know, and then they begin to understand and recognize the truth. They own it. And then the foolishness is sort of put on display. Well, in our passage today, we're going to see three people and their response to the truth when they're faced with it. Okay, and as we see it, as we watch these three people interact with the truth, we're going to learn that the quality of our life is directly related to our response to truth. Okay, the quality of your life is directly related to how you respond to the truth. If you're willing to accept it and act on it, or if you ignore it. Okay, we're going to see this. These are the three points. It's our three people. Um, first, we're going to see that we're going to see in Saul that ignoring the truth brings blindness and bondage. Okay, ignoring the truth brings blindness and bondage. Secondly, Ahimelech, owning the truth brings freedom. And then third, with David, we're going to see that owning the truth brings power. Okay, so Saul, ignoring the truth brings blindness and bondage. With Ahimelech, owning the truth brings freedom. And with David, owning the truth brings power. So first, let's look at Saul. Ignoring the truth brings destruction. This is chapter 22, verses 6 through 19. I want you to see that what happens to Saul, we're going to look at what happens and who Saul has become. And I want you to see that Saul has become what he is. It directly flows from the fact that he is unwilling to be approached or confronted with the truth. Okay, so let's look at him. First, Saul is alone and insecure. Okay, he is alone and insecure. How do we know this? Well, he's really having a pity party under this tree, right? Um, He uses the word me eight times in these verses, right? It's me, 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 me. Okay, that's what Saul is all about. Everything is about him. In verse five alone, I'm sorry, verse eight alone, he uses the word me five times. All of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses it to me that my son has stirred up his servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Right? I mean, this is David, or this is Saul. This is what's happening. And, I mean, we get that, don't we? I mean, it's fun to make fun of Saul, but there's enough of Saul in me. I'll be willing to admit that, yeah, I, I end up with the pity party when I'm frustrated and I'm not willing to look in to see why I've participated in the cause of whatever problem I'm dealing with. 
you know, I think we understand that. Um, and so Saul, really, he's alone and insecure. And part of this is because, it's interesting, in verse 7, he thinks that David is out bribing the people in his court. Okay? Verse 7, he says to his servants, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of hundreds and thousands? And it's funny because what we're seeing is this must have been exactly what Saul did. Right? He's got this group around him, people that are serving him, because he bribed them. Okay? And we're learning here as a principle that if you live by the bribe, you're going to die by the bribe. If you are being served or if you have people that are looking out for you and your interests because you pay them, then you have set yourself on a road that, I mean, that, that just, that never ends, right? That, that becomes a pit that's bigger and bigger and you have to give to be able to get their support and you have to give more and more and you're always susceptible because somebody else may have more to offer. And that's what Saul's afraid of. He thinks, Je- he thinks David has more to offer. And so his, the members of his court are going to go inside with David. And so, again, this makes Saul even feel more isolated because now he's afraid that his relationship with the folks in his court is only as good now as the money or the positions that he's got. It has nothing to do with their belief in him, their support of him personally. And we see this continued aloneness, insecurity, and this sort of mockery of a trial when he brings Ahimelech the priest and all, his, all the priests in. You know, Saul, if you look at verses 11 to 13, you know, he is the accuser, he's the prosecutor, and he's the judge. Right? He's the one that determines what evidence is, you know, comes in. He interprets it. I mean, really, everything that he's doing, it's, I mean, you see really what Saul is doing. He's committed to protecting himself. And we're seeing the lengths that he'll go to to do that. You know, and what we see is that he's actually embarrassing himself, right? Because when judgment finally comes, he pronounces judgment. No one's willing. No one is standing with him anymore. No one agrees with his judgment. No one is willing to go with him and execute the judgment that he's pronounced. Well, not no one, but we'll talk about that in a minute. And so really what Saul is doing, and this is what happens to all of us when we're unwilling to own the truth when we're unwilling to be confronted with the truth we isolate ourselves we push people away one author said Saul is increasingly isolating himself he's divesting himself of whatever true support he could have had he's pushed away his own son in chapter 20 he's exterminating the the priests of God and he's repulsed even his closest servants. And so loneliness and insecurity comes when you refuse to acknowledge the truth, when you refuse to be confrontable, approachable. Well, then it takes another step, and it goes from that, from loneliness to, to anger. Saul is angry. You know, and again, that's typically what happens when you're insecure and you're lonely and you have nobody else, then you begin to lash out, right? I mean, we've seen this in Saul. Um, we see this in our own lives. But verse 6, <laughs> he's sitting under this tree and it's, he's got his spear in his hand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have this image of all of his people are standing around him, you know, and probably kind of nervous because, well, who's he going to throw at next, right? David's not here. Jonathan's not here anymore. You know, who's he going to throw at next? You have this picture of this guy who's, so into himself, right, that he's looking for someone to throw his spear at. It's like he's holding on. This is his only power left, right? It's the power of his spear. 
It's his ability to be able to kill you if you if you cross him. And so you see that he's threatening people and controlling them with physical might. He rails on everybody in verses 7 and 8. You know, how dare you do this? I, you know, I can't believe this. And all of this sort of spirals down into the ruthless anger against Ahimelech and his family. I mean, this is indescribable what Saul does. To bring someone in, make the accusation, really allow the kind of evidence to not weigh it. I mean, there's no justice here. And it's so bad <laughs> that no one will do it, right? No one will execute the judgment except for Doeg. And, and one author said, <clears throat> if you're at the point where only Doeg is for you, you're in bad shape. <laughs> if he's the only one who's still on your side, life is really, really bad. Um, Doeg is a mercenary. He's an Edomite, which is almost like a curse word in the Bible because the Edomites were not happy people. They, they weren't folks that you wanted to fraternize with. And again, if you're fraternized with the, with the Edomites, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. And not in a good way. Not in a, oh, we should be sorry for them kind of way. No, no, they were wicked and evil. And so Doeg comes and he executes Ahimelech the priest. He executes then the entire city. Right? 85 priests are executed. And then they're not done. Then Doeg takes his troops with him and goes to the city after the men have been slaughtered and goes in and kills all the women the children, and then it goes beyond, not just the children, but the infants. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, what in the world? Saul is annihilating a village of Israel, and not just a village of Israel, but the priestly village, as though it were one of God's enemies. I mean, this is the downward spiral. When you continue to close yourself off from truth, when you continually refuse to listen, when your friends come to you, when your spouse comes to you, when your parents come to you, when your children come to you, if you refuse to listen, this is where you end up. I mean, this is a long road of decisions like this, but this is ultimately, I feel like the scripture is painting us, this is the, almost the end of the road. I mean, there's still farther to go, but this is the end of the road. And do you really want to walk down that road? Do you really want to stay on that road if that's the road that you're on? Do you really want to be that unapproachable? Do you really want to be that person that wonders about the people that are closest to you if they really care or if they're just afraid of you? Man, this really hits home. This was interesting. One author that I read said this, it's precisely for this blind obedience that rulers are interested in attracting foreign mercenaries. You know, it was just this play on Doeg. And I thought about that. It's interesting because you hire mercenaries to do the really, really bad stuff that you're hoping, you know, the only response you'll get to the command is, yes, I'll go do that. Right? You kind of want to whisper that stuff. I mean, Saul doesn't even whisper that. But, I mean, this happens, you know, politically today. Actually, I met a mercenary. Came to downtown once. I talked to him after the service, and he was a hired mercenary. Um, Hired by, maybe I shouldn't say that, I don't know. Um, but I haven't seen him since then. So, um, But yeah, he, and, and he's just paid by governments to do missions, to execute missions that they don't want their own people doing. right? And so this is what Saul has had to resort to. Um, but this also hasn't happened in politics. This happens in companies. right? You know people that, that hire only people that will do their will without question. Yes men, yes women. 
you know, and so this happens in relationships. It happens in families where people get to the point where they don't want anything but your unquestioned obedience. You know, and the question is, I mean, is there any of this in your own heart? Is there any unwillingness for you in you to acknowledge and, and be open to the truth to the point where you have to resort to these kinds of things? If so, oh boy, I want to tell you, I want to invite you to be free. You need to confess that right now as you're sitting there. You need to confess, say, God, I feel some of this in me. I'm not this far down the road, you know, hopefully, maybe, but if you are even, even if you're that far, you can still say, God, I'm sorry I've gone this far. Please forgive me and begin to work in me a solution to this. Help me to be free. Help me to get help. Help me to be open. Because for us, what we have to see with Saul is that there's a line of progression. It's his fear and it's insecurity, his aloneness, his unwillingness that causes him to let loose with his anger. To let loose with his anger. And what's interesting, you know, is that as he attacks the priests, you know, these are the servants of the Lord. And so what Saul is really doing is he's declaring war on God. Okay? Underneath his anger with David, underneath his anger with Jonathan, underneath his anger with Ahimelech, Saul is just fried about the fact that he is in the place that he is. Saul is sitting there going, I mean, Saul has moments, and we're going to see some of his moments where he almost like the light comes on and he's rational for a change. And Saul just, I I think Saul was plagued with this notion of, man, how did it get here? How did I get here? Like, what am I doing? And yet he can't let go. He can't let go. He can't let go of his kingdom. He can't let go of his honor. He can't let go of his glory. What are you holding on to today? Is it a relationship? Is it a status? Is it a career? What is keeping you from being willing, maybe even when you're exposed and you kind of know that you're doing this, what are you not willing to let go of so that you can really truly live in the truth and accept it, own it? There's some pretty strong irony here because Saul, if you remember in chapter 15, he was actually rejected by God because he didn't destroy an entire city of evildoers that God had judged. Okay? And so here, it's almost like Saul is sticking his middle finger up at God and saying, you want total destruction? (laughs) Seven chapters later, right? Saul's been brooding on this. Like, are you kidding me? Because I didn't kill the king and and the animals? Like, God is putting me here in this depressing, disgusting, awful place in my life. And it's like he's saying, you want total destruction, God? I'll give you total destruction. And it's almost as though it could have been that the rebel is saying, God, here you go. You want total destruction? I'll give it to you. And he takes out the city of Nob. Incredible, incredible irony. And I guess, you know, I think we all need to take this and and. and Look at our hearts, you know, underneath the anger that you have, underneath your fear and insecurity. Are you mad at God for something? And is there something going on in your life and you feel like you're entitled to maybe get back at God a little bit? I mean, this, this has been in my heart. Like, I've had these thoughts before. I've struggled with this stuff before where I give in to fear and anxiety and then I get angry and, it's, and it comes out where it's like, you know what, I'm just not content. I don't like where God has me. I mean, if you're there, 
in the amazingness of God's grace, God is going to respond. God is saying to you right now, look, it doesn't have to be this way. If you come clean, I will cleanse it all. <laughs> come clean. If you admit it, right, I'll cleanse you. He'll do the cleaning. You know, all you need to do is admit it. All you need to be do is admit it, be willing to let go of it, ask God to forgive you for the sake of Jesus, because that's why he came. Amen. amen and amen. I mean, that's why he came. If you're not convinced that, because you're so far down that road, that you could ever come back, God is saying, look at my son. Look at my son. Trust me. I know how far you've gone, and I'm willing to make it right. I'm willing to cleanse you from it. I wanted to say that even before I sort of exposed the futility of making war with God. I mean, for Saul, like Saul is just, he's in this really awful place because he attacks God's priest because they gave David, because he gave David an oracle, right, in the chapter before. But then the effect of his attack on the city is that one priest escapes. And where does he end up? (laughs) He ends up with David. And so... Saul, not wanting David to have any more word from the Lord through the priest, now has given David the gift of a priest to be with him all the time. And then there's something else I have to mention because it's important in the text, but I can't talk about it. So if you want to ask about it afterwards, you can. In chapter 2, when, Saul, when, when God pronounces judgment on the house of Eli, what we actually see here is that Saul is executing the judgment that God promised in chapter 2. And so even while Saul is trying to attack God, trying to make war with God, what we find is that he is simply doing the will of God. And so there's no reason to attack God. There's no reason to be at war with God. It is a losing endeavor. You're just not going to win. God's smarter, sorry. He's wiser. He's got more power, more resources. He just, better to kiss the sun, like Psalm 2 says lest you become angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Um, and I think it's good. I mean, we, we, the, the priest thing is really good to see. The judgment on Eli's house is also interesting. What it does is it shows you that God, even the wickedness and the rashness of Saul, even that is under the sovereignty of God, that God is not letting things happen um, that he's not in control of, okay? It's not that God's at fault for what Saul does. Saul and Doeg are the ones responsible for the annihilation of the city. You know, and so it doesn't take away the sorrow or the grief that comes when bad things happen, but I think it does give us this sense of victory. Like we know that God is at work and that God is, is going to be victorious. And that's hope. That's hope. One author said this, the people of God may often be put down, but never put out. Abiathar's escape does not mean that all God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but that the world's butchery can never wipe out all of God's servants. That's good. The Lord doesn't promise that we'll never die for the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God will never die. Amen. I mean, that's... (laughs) <laughs> the church will never perish. The kingdom of God will not fail. And so, um, so Saul, isolated and alone, he's angry, and then we find out that he ends up blind. And I, I, we've already hinted at this, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. But verse 16, he will not listen to the facts when Ahimelech presents his case. Verse 18, he turns to Doeg instead of listening to the silence of his people, right? 
you don't do that. If the people that you trust around you aren't willing to go along with you, don't just find someone who is. Okay? That's ignoring the truth. It's ignoring the truth. And then Saul hears in chapter 23 that David frees the city of Keilah from the Philistines, right? Common enemy, and says, oh, I'm going to go and kill David for that. I mean, this is Saul continuing to be, he's been blinded. He's blinded to the truth. He cannot see straight. He's unwilling to see his own problems and his own sins, and he's unwilling to be confronted or approached. And I just, I want to leave this by asking you, can you be approached? Do you make it easy for people to approach you if they've got a problem? Think about that for a minute. Do you make it easy for people or do you get defensive? Do you offer excuses when anybody brings up anything? I I just, I want to beg you, beg you to make efforts to be approachable when it comes to your weaknesses. I mean, really what I'm saying is please don't be the emperor. Right? Don't go walking around with invisible garments of your own righteousness. Um, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about this. So, so that's the blindness and the bondage that, uh, that, that ignoring the truth brings to Saul. Point number two, Ahimelech. Owning the truth brings freedom. Owning the truth brings freedom. Okay, and so what does Ahimelech do? Well, he, he basically, he defends David and he warns Saul. His testimony is fascinating. He praises David to the skies. Who among all your servants is like David? Faithful, loyal. He's your, the leader of your bodyguard. Come on, are you serious? The guy who's in line, he, who's protecting your life, right? Your household loves him. Everybody loves him. He's your son-in-law. Come on, really? I mean, he's praising David to the heights. And I think, I mean, <laughs> not the right thing to say, probably, to the guy who's blinded by rage and anger. You know, and it's, it's probable, one author said that this praise alone brought Saul to pure madness. You know, that you could see like the red film descending over his eyes. You know, and, and you wonder why the spear didn't get let loose, right? You wonder why the spear, or maybe he was shaking so bad he couldn't throw it at him or something like that. Um, and so what's interesting, too, is that the way that Ahimelech responds, he asks a question. And you see that? Um, I lost my place. Um, Verse, uh, verse 14, and who among all your servants, right? He's asking a question. And the askingness of this, it's almost like he's sort of astonished at Saul's attitude. So he's sort of confronting him. He's kind of saying like, are you really asking me this, Saul? Really? Are you that? I mean, he didn't say that, but I mean, that's kind of what he's implying. Like who among is, like the answer's obvious here, Saul. What, what's going on here? Um, and so he's confronting Saul. In a sense, he's, he's, he's almost implying if you hadn't alienated him, he would be loyal to you even right now. You know, so he's trying to confront. Now, the question is why? Like, wh- why is Ahimelech doing this? Um, you know, because we would expect him to be making like a desperate plea for his life, right? We expect him to say, because what would you say? Hey, I asked him what he was doing here alone. I wondered what was going on here, and he told me that you sent him on a mission, right? Wouldn't you have said that? I had no idea. Come on. 
That's all. I didn't know. I even asked him about it. I even told him, you know what, we only have holy bread. I'm not really sure. I mean, we kind of go on and on about what we did and how we're not culpable, not responsible, right? But what is he? I mean, he doesn't. He praises the one that Saul wants to kill. Well, here's one author's opinion on why he does this. And this is just brilliant. This is brilliant. He says, you expect him to make a desperate and serious attempt to save his own skin and prove his innocence, but not at all. He makes a bewildering speech, praising instead of arguing and praising the king's enemy. To do this in the face of death can only mean that you're stupid or, this author says, I imagine that during verse 15, he already draws the conclusion for himself that nothing will be of any further use against this raging persecutor and that this, his last hour, had finally struck. And so he now decides for himself to die like a man. And he's going to go out with his head held high and a completely clear conscience. I give you chills. Ahimelech refuses to share in Saul's attitude as any friend of David is an enemy of mine, right? He doesn't give in to that. And he considers it beneath him to crawl and cower before Saul to beg for his life because he knows. And so he prefers a simple statement of his innocence and he has the stature and the moral courage to start by putting David's excellence first. He tells him the truth. Ahimelech has seen the reality. He has seen the truth of his situation and it has given him the freedom to be able to be honest. And this is basically, I, this, is, this is what happens, right? When you have a relationship with God, when you are living for God and not trying to control your situation, right? When you are not trying to fix something or keep things moving in the right way or control people's thoughts, when you are serving God with your life, when he is the most important thing and you're ordering your life around serving him, you have this amazing freedom to be able to be honest. You have this amazing freedom, even in the face of danger, to be honest, to own and accept the truth. And that's power that no one can take away. I mean, that's crazy freedom. You know that, right? When you're not worried about what other people think, but you have this sense of, I know this is the right thing to do. No one can touch you, right? I mean, that's the joy that Ahimelech has. That's the, I mean, it's obviously not joy to die, but to be able to stand, I just love that phrase, to die like a man. Mm. Mm. When you understand your relationship with God, that gives you freedom also. I mean, it gives you that freedom to own, accept the truth, and not hide from it. Now, the last thing on Ahimelech is that we see that his helping of David cost him his life. Okay? I mean, we've seen that that he died. We didn't know it when it happened last chapter, although we suspected something bad because Doeg, remember that, that scene where Doeg runs off? But Ahimelech ends up giving up his life because he helped David. And in this, Ahimelech is an amazing picture of Jesus. He is a picture of Jesus. What Ahimelech does in the last scene, in this scene, shows us the work of Jesus. Because the Bible says that Jesus is our priest. 
right? He is our high priest. And Jesus is help for us. The help he provides to you also cost him his life. He didn't just give bread. He gave his own flesh. Because the help that you needed, the help that I need, I need someone to be a substitute for my sins. And that's what Jesus did. He came to die for us. He came to die so that we could go free. He came to die so that we could actually accept and own the truth first about ourselves, that we need help, that we need saving. And then he rises from the dead to give us confidence that God will forgive us. He'll forgive us. He'll accept us. And then there's hope that we can own and accept the truth. And it's interesting because, like, you make that connection and everything changes, doesn't it? I mean, Ahimelech by himself, he's inspiring, amazing example. But when you see that in Ahimelech's stance before Saul, when you see Ahimelech defending David, and you see Ahimelech sacrificing his life for David, and you understand that that's a picture of what Jesus does, you're moved to worship. It hits you deeper. Because now it's for you. Someone has treated you this way. And I think about Jesus in his trial before Pilate, before the religious leaders. He didn't defend himself because he was there for you. And now he defends and praises us. Right? He stands before the throne of God himself. He rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Right? Those wounds that say, forgive him, oh, forgive him. Every time we sin. That's Jesus defending you and praising you when you do something right, when you love, when you care, when you're part of, the, of what's right, when, you, uh, when you're doing the right thing. Jesus is up there praising you saying, yep, my spirit's alive in him. My spirit's alive in her. And so you see David, you see Ahimelech, and you see this amazing picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Boy, that moves us to worship. All right, well, so our third point now, we've got to look at David. We've got to look at David. What does he do? Well, for him, owning the truth gives him power. It gives him power. Look what David does in chapter 22, verses 23, 22 and 23. Abiathar shows up, right? He escapes. Abiathar, verse 21, told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. How does David respond? Well, hey, look, not my issue. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I, I gave him an out. I didn't tell him the truth. Um, not my fault. Saul's crazy. No. I mean, David doesn't make excuses. He admits responsibility and he owns it. I mean, look at this. He says, I knew it. I saw it happen. I'm responsible for the death of your entire family. Isn't it wonderful when you have something that you need to confront in somebody else and they just own it like that? You know, it's hard enough to approach somebody, isn't it? 
you know, you're, you're trembling inside. Maybe you get butterflies. This happens to me. You know, and you're, you're getting ready to tell somebody something you know they're not going to like, and you just hope. I mean, isn't it amazingly wonderful when they say, you know what, you're right. Not only am I guilty of that, but I was blind. I didn't even know I was doing it. Or sometimes it's, you know what, I, I, I know I do this, and I need help. Isn't it amazing when that happens? One of the ways to help it happen is to, to be that person when you get confronted. I mean, that's, that's what David does. He owns it. He welcomes Abiathar in, right? He doesn't say, you know what? I don't want you around because every time I see you, I'm going to be reminded of this guilt, of this thing that I did. No, no, he welcomes him in. He makes him part of the family. It's, I mean, he fellowships with him. Hey, the one who seeks your life is seeking mine too. We're friends here. I'm gonna, and then he promises, with me, you will be in safekeeping. And so he provides for him. He promises to, to protect him. You know, and owning the truth includes being reconciled. It means taking responsibility. And it means changing the way you live in light of the truth that you're owning. It's not just being good at confessing and then not doing anything about it, but it's reordering your life so that you can go in a different direction. And so David owns and accepts the truth. We see also that David now, he continues to go to God. I mean, this is kind of the joy, right? Because I know this, when I've I've committed sin and I haven't confessed it yet, either to the person I've sinned against or to God, I'm not going to God, right? Every time I go into prayer, it's like this thing is sitting there in the room and I'm not talking about it. And I know God's looking at it. I know I'm looking at it. And so, God, I'll talk to you later, you know? I mean, I don't want to deal with it, right? But when you confess it, when you get it out, you're free. You've let it go. It's okay. And you can go back into the presence of God. I mean, it's, it's joy. It brings joy unexpressible that you can have freedom. I mean, it's not that you, I mean, you, you need to own whatever you did. So I'm not saying you make light of what you did, but there's an amazing freedom that comes with the confession process. And so we see David four times in this short narrative in 13 verses. He goes back into the presence of God. God, what should I do? Should I do this? Yes. Should I do this? Are you sure? Yes. God, what about this? Well, yeah, this was going to happen. I mean, one author said it's like these two, it's like David and God speak as though they're good friends. You know, they're like on the phone with you. They're texting each other back and forth. Is Saul coming? Yes. You know, I mean, that's what it's like here. They have this intimate relationship that comes because David is clean. And this is the joy. I mean, I guess, you know, we sort of walked down the road that Saul's on and we saw where it was going with anger and loneliness, you know, and um, uh, walked too far away from my notes. <laughs> Come back here. Anger, loneliness. Sorry to keep that. on oh, blindness. He was blind. I was blind. I couldn't remember. Huh? Um, so we're walking down this road, seeing where this leads and thinking, oh, boy, I feel like I'm on this road sometimes, right? I don't want to be on this road. Boy, I don't want to go down that far because if I get to that point, you know, and now what we're seeing on this other side is there's this other road you can walk down. This road of being able to own the truth, accept the truth, accept responsibility, have real communion with God where you're not afraid to go into his presence, where God will speak to you through his word, through his spirit, through other people, and you can hear it. You can hear it. There's joy. I mean, boy. I mean, that's a road that leads to life. It leads to life. And so, so David owns, accepts the truth. He continues to go to God. And then what does he do? He goes out to bless the city. Okay? He goes out 
to bless the city. The city of Kila is in trouble. It's being oppressed. It's being, it's being um, occupied. You know, it's, it's dangerous enough for the Philistines to be in there bullying people around. That's dangerous. But to steal the food, to steal from the threshing floor, that's grain. That's bread. There's, you, you die. That's death. And so David goes out to fight and liberates them. Because of the power of the Spirit in him, God, and, and coming clean before God, receiving the assurance, the forgiveness in this relationship with God, David now has the power to go out, identify the evil in the city, the places where it's broken, and he sets people free. He sets people free. And he does it even in the face of danger. Do you know how dangerous it is if you're running away from Saul to engage in a battle? I mean, that's not like just a one-time hit, right? But to, to take the danger, I mean, in the danger, his men were afraid. I mean, David had to go back the second time and say, God, are you sure? And God said, yes. You know, and so David goes in and attacks highlights himself on the map so Saul can come chase him, right? I mean, this is what David's doing. So even in the midst of the danger, even in the midst of the busyness of fleeing from Saul, David still takes up his calling to bless the city. And that gets close to home. Makes me want to ask you, I mean, are you too busy to serve? Are you too busy to serve the city, to be a blessing to the city? You know, David's calling was to bring God's kingdom to Israel. That's our calling. That's our calling. You know, is, is it too dangerous for your career to try to serve the city in some way? Is it going to cost you relationships? I mean, this is your calling. And you just want to ask, what can you do or what are you doing to make a difference in the lives of people? You know, and maybe, I mean, at work. I mean, it could be the relationships that you have. What are you doing to bless the folks you work with? But it could be, what are you doing? And this could be your job if you just look at it this way. Um, what are you doing to improve the quality of the product or service that your company provides? Right? What are you doing to bless your customers? Right? What are you doing to image God in the way that you work? What are you doing at home? Family, neighbors. Well, how are you serving the city? Right? This, is, this is your calling. Um, it seems like for us, uh, when we look at David, I mean, David was serving the city. All of this was in preparation right, for him to become the king. It's almost like David is acting like the king. This is what the king is supposed to be doing. Right? And so David is acting like the king. But for us, we do it because Jesus is already the king. He is reigning. You know, and if it feels a little bit too funny for you, um, maybe you're not like a big picture person to compare yourself to David in this passage, right? Because you think, well, how am I going to go out and save a city, right, single-handedly? Some of you, I know, are willing to take up that mantle, and, I, and I, I applaud you for that. But not everybody, and that's okay. And so if you feel like the, the connection that David really is a picture of Jesus and not a picture of us, okay, I, I'll give you that, and, and let me then approach you. The question then for you is, in light of the fact that Jesus has come into San Diego, to bring his kingdom, to bring his blessing, to fill this city with his love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness, to bring his healing and his power to bear. You're one of his men. You're one of David's 600 men, right? And so the question is just in the army of Jesus, in his kingdom approach to the city, what's your role? 
Like that's just, I, I want to get you into that. I want you to get, I want you to answer that question. What is your role to bring more of his reign into the city? And that way you're following him. He's going before you. He's in you. He's with you. You know, when you stumble and fall, if you're not walking on this road yet, he'll forgive you of that. But he puts you on this road and he says, come on, let's go. Let's go and let's see what we can make. Let's see how we can bring my blessings and show other people this road, this road of joy. It all starts with being willing to be open and honest with yourself about the truth. It starts there and then it moves out. It moves out in the power of Jesus. So if, if you're here today and you don't know him yet, again, I just want to encourage you to not follow Saul. Okay, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but just be like David at this point who was willing to accept his faults and own them. If you've got sins that you haven't confessed, it's as simple as praying. You can pray right now. You can say, God, would you please forgive me? I have lived too much of my life apart from you. Thank you for Jesus who died for my sins. Set me freed from this and help me to walk with you and be open and honest about the truth. Amen, that's it. You pray that prayer, you start a new life. I hope you're ready. I hope all of you are ready to figure out how you can be a blessing to the city. Let's pray together. Father, it is with joy, even as we think through the wilderness of this life, the ups and the downs with David running and fleeing, and, and yet you give us this amazing image of Ahimelech standing and going out like a man, being willing to stand up for the truth. And then we see David taking that encouragement and taking your power to bring blessing. Father, help us to know. Give us wisdom and excitement that your mercy in the wilderness would become real to us and that in our lives, though it's struggles, though it's, it, we stress and, and there's so many things that seem to fight against us, God, that we could, by the power of your spirit, bring your blessing and your kingdom into the city. Help us to do that, God, and help us to help each other to think through how you want us to do our part. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.